Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. An Erio's original. What made me survive when I started doing comedy in the clubs is I think everyone thought I was drunk because I have cerebral palsy, but it's mm-hmm. not like obvious. So at first sight, I just look like I'm super sloshed. And mm-hmm. so I really fit in at the clubs. Hi, this is Margaret Cho. You're listening to The Margaret Cho. Today, we have on the amazing Maysoon Zaid. She is awesome. She is an amazing comedian. She is uh, a, an actress. She's on General Hospital. I love her. I, I'm so excited to talk to her. Hey! Hi! <laughs> How are you? Know you that you're like my total like big idol. Like I love you! Idol. I talk I about you. you all the time on stage, all the time. Oh my God, I'm so honored. You're amazing. Well, thank, oh, thank you. you. That's awesome. I love it. I want to do a show with you. This is ha- This has to happen. I really, really, really want to do a show with you. I think it would be such fire. And I guess we'll talk about it. But like, you were like my strange guiding light while my life was being destroyed by the people who destroyed my show. And I was like, Margaret Cho survived. I'm going to survive. Yes. You know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard when you're out there and you're different and they're trying to make a show about you, but they kind of get you from one angle but they don't really understand, you know, and it, you're trying to get them to understand, but it's very, it's very difficult. Mine was the, the old story of they bought something they never wanted, thinking that mm-hmm. they could turn it into what they did want, not realizing right. who I was and, and, and what I had stood for, you know, all right. these years. So they wanted a pity party of a disabled character who was right. always down on her luck and couldn't find love. I wanted like the gimpy sh- Carrie Bradshaw. Like you either want to be yeah. her or fuck her. And that's not what they right. wanted. And one of the things they said to me that I'll never forget in my life is they said, if she's too successful, she'll make normal people feel bad. <laughs> but that's what that, that's what that character should be. And well, that's what that you do in I'm life. Normal. Apparently I'm not normal. Like whatever their definition of normal is, which I, I think assists gender like white straight white man. So, <laughs> but that's not normal either. Like nobody, 
nobody wants to be nor why would anybody want to be normal anyway <laughs> oh, like boy. what is the what is normality got to do with being like cool or fun or interesting or whatever that it's just it's such a weird thing like when you, you know people see an artist and they find something so exciting about them and then they want to take everything about them that makes them exciting uh, away fit into that box what worked for them before you know yeah so yeah. like this is how we've always told disabled stories it's either right. you can't love me heal me or kill me and if you don't fit into that box they're gonna kill you until you do <laughs> yeah yeah and it's really i mean what's amazing i think for uh for us is that we got out of the um the system that keeps us down early enough where we could go out and be comedians. I mean, what did you feel like made you want to do comedy in the beginning? Like what, what gave you the strength to go out and do it? You, I swear to God, were one of my biggest, biggest, biggest influences because even though we're not from the same part of Asia, there was something about the fact that you were a big girl, that mm -hmm. you were so shaped by the immigrant parent experience. That was something I really identified with. But yeah. the way it went down was this. When I was five years old, I decided I wanted to be on the uh, daytime soap opera general hospital. So like I yeah. and I went and stayed theater and university. I got all A's. I went to the neighborhood playhouse in New York City, which is like this intense theater program where you cry every single day. I had <laughs> weeping spots all over New York City where I would cry in public to see if I was convincing. Mm. And I was. And I couldn't get cast in anything because Hollywood shuns mm -hmm. disability. They only use us to win awards and they only like it when the person is, you know, beautiful and healed and quote unquote normal on the red carpet. So like whenever right. you see images of disability, we're 20% of the population, only 2% mm -hmm. of the images on TV now, which is 20 years after I started my career, only 2% are disabled people of mm -hmm. those percent 95 percent are played by non-disabled people so that's right. what i'm up against i'm not getting cast in anything who do i see i see richard pryor the original shaking comic i see whoopi mm -hmm. you ellen and i'm like this is where people who don't fit in go and i right. think what made me survive when i started doing comedy in the clubs is i think everyone thought i was drunk because i have cerebral <laughs> palsy but it's mm -hmm. not like obvious. I'm not like a wheelchair user. It's not obvious mm -hmm. what's going on with me. So at first sight, I just look like I'm super sloshed. And mm -hmm. so I really fit in at the clubs where yeah. it was like a weird reject, just trying to get people to laugh and love them. And so it worked out. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really, I think it's like all of us misfits. We uh, find comedy because Comedy is a place where we could find comfort. I mean, laughing was where I found comfort from getting bullied, comfort from being shunned, comfort from being alone all the time because I would amuse myself by making fun of other people in my head. And so I could comfort myself. And then I, I felt better than everyone because I was laughing at them in my head. And then when, you know, when you get in front of an audience and you can share that side of yourself and you feel really like you've conquered something, you know, 
So I had a very triumphant. I had a very opposite experience. I didn't Mm -hmm. start getting bullied until I made it on TV. So I grew up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a very small town in New Jersey, like one square Mm -hmm. mile. Everybody knew me. I think the parents must have taken the kids aside before kindergarten and threatened to like beat them basically if they made fun of me. So I was never (laughs) made fun of. I was never bullied. I was the only Muslim girl in a completely Christian town and they would take me a midnight mass and show me off and be like, she's from where Jesus is from. And I'd be like, I'm from And I was never bullied or made fun of. And then Mm -hmm. when I got to television, um, which was in 2010, 10 years into my career, I mean, I had Mm -hmm. been heckled like every other comic. But then when I went on TV, I became a full-time contributor on Countdown with Keith Olbermann. And that's when people started not only bullying me mercilessly online, but actually threatening my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing because a lot of my comedy career sprouted out of being a Muslim Arab woman doing comedy in New York City post 9-11. A year into my career, 9-11 happened. And so I didn't think that 10 years later, people would seriously just want to kill me because I was Muslim and I was vocal about it. And it's escalated now because we, you know, have a predator in the White House who literally says that he wants to send back people like me, that Muslims hate Americans, that, you know, all these other things. So the bullying to me came when I was an adult and I was Mm -hmm. ready. I was 100% ready and I could fight back. And a lot of people tell me, why do you fight back? Why don't you just mute? Why don't you just block? And I say, I do it for the generation of disabled kids that can't. The generation that's coming up are being bullied every single day. They have abusive parents. They have abusive teachers. They have abusive schoolmates. And they need someone to shut that shit down. And that's what I do. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, that's like superhero stuff. You know, that's really, really important. You and I know. It's nothing compared to hecklers because like, yeah, I got sharp on hecklers. That's happening a lot, <laughs> you know, on, yes, yes. online, you get to structure that clap back. So right, it sounds you do like Mr. Miyagi right before he picks his <laughs> shoulder, you know, you do have a little bit of time. You do have a little bit of time. Like you, the heckle, like you have fractions of a second to formulate it. And you have everybody watching and you have to get it right the first time. You cannot back down. It's almost like you have to formulate it before you even know what you're saying. It, it's, it's, it's actually a, very tough. It's a car accident. It's literally like you're watching a car accident happen. You can either swerve or hit the brake or you smash right into it. And like <laughs> you said, you hear it after. You're like, oh, I just said that. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. when you become a seasoned comic, you have answers in your pocket. And you're like, yeah. oh, I got this one. Boom. That's one. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, online, I get to really work it, which is, is, is yeah. fun for me. It's definitely, it's, it's definitely a lot better um, uh, online when you have a little bit of like, at least you, you, could, you could have the luxury of about 15 or 20 seconds to work, <laughs> work something in there. But yeah, on stage is hard. It's definitely like, I mean, I think to have gone on and do comedy as a, a Muslim woman comedian, it's already hard to be a woman in comedy. 
it's already hard, hard to be a Muslim woman in comedy. And then after 9-11, after only doing comedy for a year, is an incredible challenge, you know, that that you're taking on all of these things with just a year of comedy. I mean, how did it yeah. feel going on stage right after that happened? So first of all, I was very lucky at my, I, I trained at Caroline's Comedy Club. I took a class with mm -hmm. an amazing guy named Mike Irwin. On my third show, I met a guy named Dean Obidala. And Dean is another Palestinian American, also Italian comic from Jersey. And we met at my third show. Right after 9-11, Dean reached out to me and he said, why don't we do something to combat the negative images of Arabs and Muslims in the media? And I had only been doing comedy for one year. He was working like backstage at SNL. And I was like, sure, let's do it. And I had no idea about the magnitude and the importance and the reaction that we were going to get. So like we decided to do a comedy festival and there were clubs that refused to let us book our show there because oh, we wow. the word Arab, our American comedy festival. And they were like, absolutely no way. But Christmas oh. at Gotham stood behind us. And, oh, good, good. Yeah. And put us up and, and the festival grew out of that. So because I had Dean, who was kind of a veteran, not much older than me, but had been doing comedy much longer. And would, like I said, was working backstage at SNL doing like rights for stuff because he was a lawyer in another life. He was able to get me on the track of doing this and kind of combining social justice with stand-up comedy. And what was amazing about that is I wasn't talking about disability at all. My jam was all about like Arabs are not all terrorists and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when did you start talking about disability? When did you bring that in? 2014 when I did the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even intentional. When I started doing stand-up comedy, I didn't really want to talk about my disability. It wasn't that I was self-conscious, but I was full of rage about so much other stuff. Right. You really feel like the most important subject. Yeah. But when I, when I did the TED Talk, I wanted the centerpiece of my TED Talk to be the fact that Hollywood discriminates against people with disabilities, that we're nowhere to be seen, and that it's really offensive when a non-disabled person plays visibly disabled on screen. And so I made that the centerpiece of my talk. Talk gets translated into 47 languages. It's disseminated all over the world. I start getting emails from kids all over the world telling me incredible horror stories. So mm -hmm. I grew up very privileged in that my parents loved me. And mm -hmm. my mom is tough. Like failure is not an option. If you get a B, she doesn't talk to you for a year. If you get a C, she tells you not to come to her funeral. But my <laughs> oh, parents no. never considered me a burden. They never right. abused me. They never tried to kill me. And what mm -hmm. I was getting was messages from kids worldwide that didn't have access to education, that had abusive households, that were being forcibly sterilized. And I realized mm -hmm. that this community needed a voice. And yeah. that laughter gets people to listen to things they normally wouldn't. And that no yeah. one wants to sit and talk about disability. They want to give you the $10 and move on. But I want mm -hmm. to have a conversation. And so this was the way to have it. And then I shifted my weight and leaned into disability advocacy while still making sure to always do comedy about what I want. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important to, you know, do is like when we can talk about 
of these difficult subjects through um, jokes and like comedy laughter, making it somehow a way for people to listen more by, I don't know, making them laugh about it. It really goes in. It, it somehow it's like it lubes it up to make it go in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's exactly, you know? exactly what it is. Like it just like gets it wet enough so it'll just slip <laughs> it in <laughs> because people won't listen because they're just so dry and like hard. So you have to like get them like laughing about something in order to get those ideas in. If it's not laughter, it's blood, you know, like blood is the other way to get mm-hmm. somebody to mm-hmm. listen. Yeah. Like violence is yeah. the other way to really like beat them down into getting them to listen. And that that's not a horrible way, but laughter is the other way in and i think that's the best way in because then people are more willing to accept and appreciate i think even people with opposing points of view not that anybody would ever be opposed to children or be opposed to listening about stories about disability but often people what they do is they just they close their mind to it or they just want it to be invisible yeah you know but they shut down. Yeah. And the, and the thing is that like part of what I'm doing is I'm humanizing people with disabilities by mm-hmm. reminding every single person in the audience that it takes just like one pop blood vessel and you're disabled too. And that's how I kind of bring them in with like fear. Right. Because then they sit and they laugh at themselves and they're like, oh, I never really thought about that. This yeah. probably start listening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Or that it's kind of like this thing of um, they think that somehow disabled people are so different or that um, disabled people would have no idea that if there's like movies about disabled people that are starring uh, people who aren't disabled, that they wouldn't care. They wouldn't care. Right. Or that if they disabled people aren't. Yeah. It's a weird yeah. thing. It's the same thing of like when they have. Um, actors that aren't of a certain race playing that race that though that race wouldn't care but of course they care it's like right. the same sort of cultural appropriation would happen in the same way for people who are not disabled playing those roles and a lot of times i tell people like if you go watch a video of me and then have the best actor in the world imitate how my mouth moves you're going to be uncomfortable because it's cartoonish and it's offensive it's a mm-hmm. visual you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I have no idea how many people with invisible disabilities are on my screen, right? Because the stigma is so strong that sometimes they won't reveal it. So I'm only mm-hmm. talking about visible disabilities when I talk about this because I don't know how many stars are out there with invisible disabilities, you know? Yeah. But yeah. also, like, every once in a while, not even every once in a while, probably every three shows, I go to a college and I don't talk about disability. I just talk about whatever I want. Maybe it's, you know... Jake Paul getting arrested. Maybe I don't know what it is that I want to talk about, but I don't allow people to demand I educate them unless mm-hmm. they're paying me big bucks. If they're paying me big bucks, yeah. I'll educate them. I don't care because I do the <laughs> I do corporate colleges, clubs, and conferences. When I'm on stage <laughs> at a club, I'm just doing my jokes, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not going to play whatever role they want me to, which brings me yeah. back to the idea of, um, of the series and the, the idea that I wrote the series so that if mm-hmm. someone who was playing that 
character wasn't me, the character wouldn't be disabled. She was disabled because I was. And then if in the future, the storyline dictated having a really big disabled storyline, like one of the things that happened in my life was I did a one woman show. It was a huge hit. Jennifer Aniston was in the audience. And my after party was at the Cat and the Fiddle in Hollywood. And I was wearing like stiletto heels and like a flapper dress. And they wouldn't let me in because they said I was wasted. And we oh, had, no. yeah, so I couldn't get into my own party. And oh then we God. had to have like stars come out of the party and like berate the bouncer to get me into my own party. So that's something that I could see happening on a sitcom. <laughs> Yeah. That's funny. That's really yeah. funny. It wasn't funny that night, by the it way. It was <laughs> I wasn't strong enough. Like me now would turn into a Karen immediately and just call the cops. I'd be like, I'm being discriminated against, you know. But, but you were, but that's legit being discriminated against. I mean, that's like a real reason to be like pissed. That's horrible. It is yeah. horrible. And disabled people like we face massive amounts of discrimination. But when right. you add to the fact that I'm also brown and I'm mm-hmm. also a big girl, it's really amplified. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, all of the things that we like count against us, like in society, it's just like, where where is that sort of thing of like, where does the line of demarcation stand? Like how many different kinds of cards do we have to carry in terms of minority status? Like. Yeah that the, the the burden of it is very the burden of minority gets very heavy in those sorts of identities it's hard planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Riz Ahmed, he's, I love Riz Ahmed. Riz Ahmed, I know, yeah, he's great. great, great talk about being the only one and how mm-hmm. hard it is to be the only one in the room Mm-hmm. And what I felt like when I was going through the, the sitcom Nightmare, when I was telling people that things were offensive to Muslims, they assumed that I was saying it just because I wanted to change it. When mm-hmm. I was saying that you can't write, like my brand is not a sad disabled person that can't catch a guy. That's not the brand. I'm trying to bring sexy back yeah. to disability. Because a lot yeah. of people think that disabled people are like happy snowflake angel babies that never grow up and never have sex. And like, if you're Muslim, you lie about it till you get married. But like, you yeah. still do it. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. But, of but course. they wanted they wanted what we call inspiration porn, which is, you know, the disabled person gets help from the non-disabled person and they finally achieve their goal and they could have never done it themselves. And that extends to another thing that I'm like, because now apparently this has turned into a therapy session that I'm sick of is viral videos of disabled people doing normal things. So when I was a senior in high school, I went to the prom with a non-disabled guy and he was like gorgeous. That video would now go viral and it would be like popular boy takes, makes palsy prom perfect or some horrifying thing like that. (laughs) 
And then uh-huh. I would have gotten grounded for life because my parents are conservative Muslims. I wasn't allowed to have a prom date. And I like posed yeah. by myself because people never get permission to exploit disabled people. And that includes parents. And there's a yeah. whole field of parents that we call martyr parents who put on a picture of their kid looking so adorable, smelling a rose, and then being like, Jake made me almost want to kill myself today. I can't handle living with a disabled <laughs> child. One and then everyone in the comments are like, Francie, you're the best mother ever. And I'm like, oh. Jake's going to find this post, you witch. And yeah, you, I'm not going to feel bad for you. Yeah, that's so gross. Yeah, that's really gross. But it's, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot because social media is now different than like when I was growing up. So people don't have respect for their children right. and don't allow them to reveal their disability status themselves. You know, they'll put a picture of a 16 year old changing their, um, you know, their underpants in a bathroom and being like, I have to change my kid on the ground because they won't make it accessible. You do not need to put a picture of that child at 16 that doesn't want that picture up there to make your point. So like the exploitation of people with disabilities online is something I'm very concerned about and trying to to stunt as much as I can. Yeah, that's good. I mean, because that's a horrible, that's a horrible thing. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing. It's really scary. I mean, that's really sociopathic and people are using that kind of to get attention for themselves. You know, that's almost like Munchausen. By it's like it. kind of shit. Yeah. You know? It's um, like it. We call them martyr mothers. I think, but it's real. Like that kind of social media breeds that sort of need to, what it's sort of called like virtual, virtue signaling, where they're showing like what they're able to do or like showing how great they are and sort of martyring themselves and showing how great they're at the expense of other people, like innocent yeah. people. Yeah. And it's, it's awful. So it's also that keeping up with the Joneses, right? Because everybody's trying to show a perfect picture of their lives. And so yeah. they can't figure out how to fit into that picture as a parent of a disabled child. They create mm-hmm. this alternate, just as intriguing and love getting person. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, poor yeah. Margaret. Oh, I love you, Margaret. I'm sending you virtual hugs. Look, it's loading slowly. <laughs> so slowly. So slowly. <laughs> so then, like, so when you go back to TV, what kind of show um, do you want to do? Like, what, uh, where would you want to do it? And, like, what kind of, would you want to do, like, I, I love the idea of, like, your Carrie Bradshaw kind of moment thing. Like, the, this sort of very positive and um I I really I, that's a really exciting thing like to me like very like sassy role model yeah there for you so I have three different concepts because you know we gotta be hustlers right my my mm-hmm. number one dream is to do a panel show called the others which uh-huh. works with me and you doing a show together which is something that yeah. we want to do and it's basically yeah. the voices of those people that they'll let us guest host one special episode, maybe during like Ramadan, but in general, we don't get to talk. And I want it to be five women of color who are mm-hmm. like super intelligent and diverse, um, mm-hmm. but nothing like The View, not talking about current events, talking about life. 
like mm-hmm. imparting the wisdom that we have to the next generation while being funny. That's one yeah, thing. Um, that's great. TV show wise, my show that died, I was a restaurant reviewer by day and a Broadway wannabe by night that was in a torrid love triangle between a Palestinian refugee and an Italian New Jersey cop. That show oh, <laughs> is dead forever. So mm-hmm. now I'm working huh. on a show called Sanctuary where I play a high-powered Wall Street lawyer who gets sucked into the gritty world of immigration. But it's a comedy mm-hmm. like MASH. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then my... I love that. My third thing is I'm on General Hospital. I ended up landing yes. the role on General Hospital. and it That's incredible. So far exceeded the dream. It was so much like better and more fun and more excellent than I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. But it has to, whatever I do has to be comedy. I'm not really yes. interested in doing anything like super serious or dramatic. I want everything I do to have an element of comedy. But the reason I like the talk show, panel show genre is I'm just better at bouncing off people than anything else. I'm a good actor, but I, yeah. love, I love doing it live. I love doing yeah. what we're doing right now, like actually having a conversation. Yeah. But well, General, ho- General Hospital, though, is kind of, there's kind of a live element, too, because you do, it is like a play. It's like And a play. you have to learn lines every day, right? You have, to learn, you have to learn a lot of lines every day, and then some of the lines get cut, and it's like you block and shoot, and I swear to God, the first scene I ever shot, I had no idea we shot it. And I was like, hey, when are we shooting that scene? They're like, we already shot it. I was like, yeah. Totally thought that was a rehearsal. I had no idea. So it moves really, really fast. But it's super fast. They're really cool people on the soap yeah. operas. I've been around yeah. some horrifyingly disgusting monsters in Hollywood. And like I got on the side of General Hospital. The executive producer is like an angel walking among us. The people in wardrobe were like working so hard to make sure everything was accessible. The director was so patient and had no time and like structured everything around me because I can walk and dance, but I can't stand. I fall over. So they made sure that I was always in motion without being like distracted. It was incredible. But we got shut down because of the pandemic. I know, but what? Uh, I mean, but we're you know when back. you go when you back. come back, will you? Will, I mean, because they, they've got to do a lot of coronavirus episodes. They have to. I mean, this is the time. Yeah, they should because they're essential workers. So how would they go down? Yeah, so we <laughs> had to go down when all of California went down because you usually have like 20, 30 people on set. There's a lot of moving pieces with cameras and sound and all that stuff. But the General Hospital will be back. It'll be better than ever. And I'm excited to see how they make it work without killing us all. I mean, when did you fall in love with um, the, was it during the Luke and Laura era no. or was it after? It was uh, Robin and Stone. Robin okay. and Stone. Okay. So Robin yeah. is the daughter of Anna Devane, very famous legacy character. And her boyfriend mm-hmm. Stone got AIDS. And it was okay. an AIDS storyline with Robin and Stone. Right. He died, she okay. got it. And it was the first time that like General Hospital broke ground in Robin getting AIDS because it was a straight white woman, which wasn't right. who was stereotypically dying back then. Yeah. Yeah. That was um I remember that. 
Wait, who, who's the actress that played? Well, this her, wasn't Fanola Hughes. That's right. It was Fanola Hughes, not Emma Sams. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, here's what's funny. Emma Sams plays Robin's dad's second wife. So you're pretty close. But it's Fanola Hughes. <laughs> yeah, it's Fanola Yes, Hughes. that's right. Wow. And, um, oh, my God. Okay, so it's, like, all coming back. Because I was super deeply into, like, the Tony Gary, um, like, Luca Laura era with Scorpio and the Quartermains. And um, I think Bobby Zeman, like that whole yeah, era. Jackie Zeman, Bobby. Yeah. Jackie. <laughs> so, Jackie Zeman's still on the show. Jeannie yeah. Francis, who plays Laura, is still on the show. The amazing, amazing Leslie, who plays Monica, is still on the show. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. That's incredible. And They've then, like, all been on my, the show for like 40 years. My first <laughs> crush, like, on TV is a guy mm-hmm. named Maurice Bernard, who plays Sonny. Oh, okay, yeah. And my first month on General Hospital, I got to do a scene with Sonny. And like, wow. I'm, I'm, nothing ruffles me. I have no fear. I don't get nervous. People are always like, aren't you nervous? I'm like, never. And I was about to vomit, like Stan from South Park all over this man. <laughs> when I was done with the scene, he was like, you were amazing. Your eyes were so intense. And all I could think oh. is, they were so intense because I was trying desperately to focus so that I wouldn't barf because I was Aww. so swoony. <laughs> That's beautiful. That so how did you get um, on that show? Did you uh, write a part for yourself? <laughs> did they write you in? Did you audition? What happened? So when I started my comedy career in 2000, by 2003, I was getting interviewed all the time. 2020, 60 Minutes, Queen Latifah, you name it. I'm getting interviewed all the time. Every single interview, I mentioned that my dream was to be on General Hospital, hoping that they would hear it. And yeah, I for one year, I wrote about Palestine for the Daily Beast. And I mm-hmm. found a way to write an article that compared Luke from General Hospital to Yasser Arafat. The first, <laughs> uh, I swear to God, I can send it, I can send it to you. And so, and then I did the TED talk and I made sure to put it right there. My dream in life is to be on the soap opera general hospital. Five years after the TED talk, Frank Valentini, the executive producer, finally hears about me from Mark Teschner, who is the casting director. And Mark knew that I was desperate to get on general hospital. And he showed Frank my stuff and Frank reached out to my agents And they invited me in for a meeting. So I went into the meeting. I got like the glam squad and I made myself like look soap opera ready. And I was like really there to sell it. And when I walked in, I didn't have to sell anything. He was like, we're going to write a part for you. And we just want to know what it is that you want to do. And I said, I want to play a character who's not written as disabled. I really Mm -hmm. just want to play a character. And so they wrote the role of Zara Amir for me. And she's a high-powered family lawyer who wins every single case and has an extremely, extremely dark and mysterious past that we don't know because it's never been read. Mm-hmm. And it could go anywhere. But no, yeah. I'm, I'm a recurring character. So I balance my appearances 
on general hospital with my touring schedule and general mm-hmm. hospital has been really awesome about like, I'll send them a message and be like, I have no shows this week. And they'll be like, okay, we'll see if we can bring you in. So we work together. I'm not full time. I'm not a star. I'm just recurring. That's great. But then like you can come in um, and then when um, they have like a very deep like storyline and then, um, you know, they could pull like I love when when like a soap opera goes deep into one character and then like goes like they go on the run or something like that would be really great with you. Yeah, it's really fun because the fans have been incredible. And so like Mm -hmm. when I first went on TV with Keith Olbermann, People were calling me like a Gumby Mouth terrorist whore. And when I first went on General Hospital, people were like, we are so excited about this character. And they've been yeah. like, really supportive and they have polls that are like, who should be her love interest? And I've been on like five episodes over the past six months because obviously a pandemic broke out and I didn't get to go back. But, you know, I have fans who are like, when's Zara coming back? And they've Aww. been so positive and so supportive. It's, it's yeah. amazing. People could learn from the daytime fans. I love it. I think that's great. I think it's really exciting. I mean, I think, it, it, you know, what a, what a cool job to go back to, you know, and I bet that they'll have some really, really thrilling uh, storylines too, especially with the pandemic, you know, going yeah. back into to the story, because there's going to be a lot of great things for them to write about. Yeah. You know, it's going to be amazing to see. It's yeah. fun getting the scripts because like we read the story with everyone else. We never know what's going to happen until we're handed the next script. So it's always, yeah. it's always a surprise. It's all fun and games though, until they write that you die like Joey from friends did. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but the and thing about the way, you could come back to life because they could be, you could be the twin sister or you could be a relative or you could be a quarter main. And come back. You don't know. You could be. Well, you can, <laughs> You there's a cat. There's a guy on General Hospital named Michael Easton who has played three different characters so far: Caleb, Silas, and Finn. And they just yeah. The guy doesn't look exactly the same. Yeah, so, they just like <laughs> put the eye patch on the other eye or whatever. Like they always come back as a different whatever. <laughs> so you know, you just never know. It's always different. Or even if you're like in Britain, they, they have um, a, another soap opera. Well, they have a couple. There's one EastEnders and then Coronation Street. There's like different characters that are played by the same actor over 30, 40 years. And it's so I love a soap opera that runs for that long. It's one of those things of the industries, like in our industry, that runs forever. That yeah, has a very specific fandom. 56 years. And there are some Incredible. people that have been there since day one. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That and like shows like Law and Order, you know, that'll Dun-dun. just like run forever, which I love. I love it. <laughs> so, so who's your favorite Law and Order couple, uh, d- detectives? Um, well, I always love, um, I guess I love, well, Mariska and Chris Maloney. Well, I love Mariska and Ice-T. Mm. I love Probably. Briscoe and Logan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jerry yeah, Orbach yeah. and Chris Noth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because Jerry Orbeck was baby's dad in Dirty Dancing. So that just got me even more obsessed with him. Oh, yeah. Jerry Orbeck always had those really dry, punny opening joke lines to deliver. Uh Like, I guess he's not napping in Napa this week. You know, like, I just loved his comedy. That's, and then Christoph is very, have you done Law and Order? I did an um a one of them last October at 
in um, Chinatown. They did one that was actually based on a real, they, most of them were based on real people. So that was from good. the headlines, man. Ripped from the headlines. So that was cool. <laughs> it was a, it was a really interesting one. Um, but I played a baddie, a bad character, which was fun because I got to do scenes with Ice T, and um, it, it was it was exciting. But I, I love like when you get to do a show what you're that you're a fan of, just like General Hospital, and you're so, in the world of it. When I was trying to become an actress before I, I realized that Hollywood shunned me. I was an extra on Law and Order on an episode called The Dead Wives Club. And it was like a Muslim guy that had several dead wives that he was married to Ooh. all at the same time instead of oh. killing them one after another. They were all the and I played a vague hijabi in a laundry mat. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> but I love that if you've ever been in New York, you've been on Law and Order. Yeah, everybody has. <laughs> everybody, if they're in New York, they've been on it. It's 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 a classic New York. It's a New York experience. It is. Everybody's got to do it. Well, you are the best. And where can people find your shows? Where can they find you? What are you doing? Where 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 where, where can they find all about your themes? Okay, so it's super easy maysoon.com like the month of may is coming soon maysoon.com maysoon.com has all my videos it has a link to my audible memoir called find another dream it has pictures of my cat beyonce that you can like and it has links to my instagram and my facebook and my twitter and if you like politics follow me on twitter um if you don't like politics don't follow me it's, and, just, and, it's and, everywhere it's on instagram facebook i tried to like not be political some places not be angry some places and it didn't work so it's yeah it's just everywhere <laughs> we're just everywhere we're everywhere well i love you we'll do a show soon we yes do a show. show soon i can't wait and i i want to say again like i freaking hate people and you have really been just such an incredible inspiration for me. I'm always, always, always cheering for you. I always have your back. And I'm just so happy to finally meet you virtually. It's taking over my dreams, waking me out of my sleep. I think I'm coming apart. The Margaret Show is an Erios production with editing by Tracy Levy and original music by Garrison Starr. Never miss an episode of The Margaret Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.